Hey, this is Rob and that's Micaiah and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, Al Green's best album versus Al Green's greatest hits. Micaiah, I have nominated Al Green's 1975 Greatest Hits LP. You have nominated, I think, what is agreeably his best studio album. What do our listeners need to know up top about Al Green? Well, I mean, uh, Al Green is one of the all-time great, you know, singers, period. Um, But uh, specifically soul singers. Um, He is someone who... When you look at any kind of list, he's going to be there, right? The great albums list. He's, you know, on the Rolling Stone list, always had three. Um, they've moved over time, but he's always had three. They've been solidly on there. When you look at the list of the best songs of all time, right? You're going to have lists stay together, take me to the river. Like there are just a handful of songs where you're going to see Al Green appear again. When you look at the best artists of all time, when that list comes out, he's on there. When you look at a list of the best singers of all time, he's on there. I mean, this is one of the most celebrated, you know, American artists, right? And one of the definitive, you know, kind of sounds in uh, Southern soul that isn't out of Muscle Shoals and is in Memphis, but isn't in Stacks. He's actually at, at high records. So he's a unique artist in Southern soul and he's unique even for, for Memphis soul music because uh, he's not coming out of the same system as Booker T and the MGs and Isaac Hayes and Otis Redding. He's coming from high records. Now, of course, Memphis is a small town, so you know uh, there's there's some crossover with some of the studio musicians, but you know uh, Al Green is unique even to the Memphis music, and and I love when you get uh, when you find the old Al Green LPs because you'll see in the on the bottom it'll say Memphis Sound with a diamond, you know, so really emphasizing you know uh, you know the regionalism, and on the back they always say Al Green International Fan Club with the address Memphis Tennessee, you know, great artifact, but. Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, that's pretty much all there is to it. You know, he's not kind of recognized as like Sam Cooke or James Brown. Um, you know, and you probably hear him more now from film soundtracks, famously on Pulp Fiction, and a lot of like romantic comedies. His music does really well on those kind of soundtracks, and just has this legacy. And as a person who's been remembered as being just one of these all-time great acts, his last album was in two thousand eight, so quite a long time ago. But it was produced by Quest Love, you know. So it's, he's he is he is beloved in the industry and by people all over. Um, and so we're here to talk about him today with his his greatest hits, a great set of ten songs uh, versus an LP. And I do think that Al Green uh, is much more of an LP artist than other soul you know artists at the time. Like he's not like. The Temptations and Diana Ross and the Supremes. He's certainly not like the Motown people. You know, he he's an he's he's album oriented. You know, so he's more like more like Stevie in that way. Um, at this point in the early '70s, where there's a, a focus on like really making a tight album that makes a statement as a whole. And um, I think that uh, this record does that uh, exceptionally well. Um, you know, within his catalog. I, I think the interesting thing about someone like Al Green is, is he is more of an LP artist than I think people get credit for. But I, I also wonder as well if that's a Memphis thing, because you, you kind of contrasted against Motown 
And Motown was very much, you know, let's, let's pump out 45s as fast as we can. Memphis, both high records, stacks records, um, you know, sun, like sun was the Memphis studio that was like kind of 45 focused, but both high and, and stacks are, are far more LP focused. And I think Al Green doesn't get enough credit for that. And part of the reason that he might not is because high records in the 1970s, Al Green was their cash cow. Like he, he was their artist. And so he had a great run of albums to start his career with high records. His first five albums on high records, each one sold more than its predecessor. And then he had two flops and the two flops really kind of led high records to do what a lot of labels did at the time, which was if they were planning on a record performing so well, and it didn't, that money had to be made somewhere. And so what was common was for a label to essentially say, Hey, we are going to take a collection of hits that have come off these earlier albums package them and sell them as a greatest hits. And it wasn't the kind of culminative greatest hits that we think of today. Like the, the kind of looking back at the whole career of an artist, it was almost just, Hey, we want to look back at these last four or five albums. And, um, you know, we, we have, I mean, in, in many ways, that's what the Sly and the Family Stone greatest hits collection was. It was really trying to bridge this gap between stand and there's a riot going on. And essentially they add two previously unreleased tracks onto this greatest hits collection. And it gives the record label a chance to essentially release a whole new album and sell the existing material for a second time. And so in many ways, the 1975 Al Green Greatest Hits collection is just high records trying to make money, but it works. And not only does it work, it is the greatest selling Al Green album even to this day. That Al Green 1975, now again, all of the reissues since 1975 have a one song switch on the LP versions. The CD versions are radically different from 1995 going forward, but still this is overwhelmingly the greatest selling Al Green album, if we're going to call it that, but it's a greatest hits collection. It's a compilation, but it's a mid career compilation. And I love the collection of songs that are on it, but it's not an LP. I mean, it's not an album. It's not a studio recording. It is a compilation. And so in many ways, this head-to-head is an interesting one because it is a head-to-head looking at a single studio album versus a greatest hits collection. So there's no doubt which album has the greatest number of hits on it. There's no doubt which album um, has the best collection of songs. But what do you miss on an album? when you take only the highest charting singles from an album, what are, what are the things that make an album great? What are the songs that make an album great that are not top 40 material? And so in some ways, this is really a conversation, not just about Al Green, but about this idea of whether or not when we're thinking about an album, 
is the album more than the sum of its parts? Because if it's not, then greatest hits should be the easy answer for us. But if an album is more than the sum of its parts, what else plays into that? And so I'm really interested in the conversation we're going to have today. And Micaiah, of course, like every podcast episode that we do, where we go head to head, we're going to bring in a tiebreaker. And we've had him on the podcast before. Tell us about our guest today. Well, our listeners have heard uh, Stephen uh, Dusner on a previous episode when we talked about Big Star, uh, another group from Memphis in the 70s. Um, and he is back to talk about Al Green. Um, I believe he even mentioned Al Green probably in his top five albums, I think, uh, when he, we last saw him on here. So this made perfect sense Glad to have him back on. So... Yeah. I mean, I'm ready to get right into it. Let's do it. it. Listener, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to let you hear from our sponsors, Mirror Coffee Roasters and Spotify for Podcasters. And then we'll be back with our guest, Stephen Dusner. I want to take a second and tell you a little bit about Mirror Coffee Roasters. Mirror Coffee Roasters are pursuing excellence from coffee, farm to cup. The goal at Mirror Coffee Roasters has always been to use coffee as a tool for change. Whether that's a bag of coffee on your kitchen counter or creating a sustainable, human-focused sourcing practice that goes far beyond generic marketing labels. No matter how you enjoy your coffee, Mirror Coffee Roasters is here to help you on your journey and elevate your coffee experience. I want to encourage you to go to their website, mirrorcoffeeroasters.com today and check out their coffee box, a four bag sampler box of some of their best coffees from Colombia, Guatemala, and Ethiopia. Check out Mirror Coffee Roasters today. It's our joy to have uh, Stephen Deucer back as a guest. Um, you have read his writing everywhere. Um, you have read uh, his album reviews on Pitchfork. You have uh, read write-ups that he's done. Seemingly every uh, music outlet there is. Uh, and of course, if you haven't had a chance yet, you want to get your hands on his book, about the drive by truckers. And uh, I'm so excited to let you know that he's got a 33 and a third on the way on one of the most peculiar seasons of Garth Brooks career, his time as alternate persona, Chris Gaines. 
So Steve Inducer, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for being back on the pod. Oh man, it is a pleasure to be back. Thank you for inviting me back. And I didn't, uh, I don't know, we have a saying around here, I didn't eat the furniture. So I, I <laughs> you know, I, di- I didn't uh, burn any bridges. So I'm, I'm really happy to be back. It's, it's great to talk with y'all. Well, hey, before we get into Al Green, which is what we have you here to talk about, tell us a little bit about this 33 and a third you're working on and why is it that you chose Chris Gaines? Because there are some there are some legitimately great Garth Brooks albums that you could talk about or you could write about. And yet this kind of seemingly swing and a miss in his career, this experience as Chris Gaines is what you have chosen to write about. Tell us what was exciting about that. What was it that kind of drew you to that? You know, it's it's funny. Uh, This is sort of one of the things I'm trying to answer as I write. And it's um, one of those things you would think I would have a really good pithy answer for. And I do not. So I'm going to ramble just a bit. It is a singular album in that nobody's ever done anything, attempted anything like it or failed as hard as he did. I mean, this is the best-selling artist by that point of all time. He had beaten the Beatles. He'd beaten everybody. There were no territories left to conquer. And he, for some reason, decided to do this. I think he was trying to cross over into rock and, and into film. He devised this character, and the character didn't make sense, and the music didn't make sense, and... You know, it, it it was a massive fiasco, but I think what he was trying to do and what he did both reflect on everything that had come before and and sort of both sort of put his career in a different light. And so also there's just something really fascinating about failure, about bad music. I'm a ba- huge fan of bad movies and we'll we'll I'll, Later on, I'm going to get to get back to this, but there's just something about writing about bad music that's that's really fascinating and, and allows you to do things you might not otherwise do if you were talking a lot about like a Dylan album or something like that. Like, I, I, there's just so much to it that's just so much fun. And um, I've I have talked with younger people here, students and twenty somethings, who were just like fascinated by this album. So. That's my long rambling story is that uh, that it's just it's as a failure. It is just fascinating. In some ways, you can write a much more interesting book about a failure than you can a success. There's just so many more avenues to explore. There's there's so many things to consider because because there are also you know, we talk a lot about great albums that were commercial failures, but ultimately were great albums this was a bad album that was not just a commercial failure. It was a failure in terms of what was on the album. And it does make you wonder someone who had Garth Brooks stature at that point, because you're right. He had, he had conquered all the worlds at that point and to make an album this bad, but to, to try so hard, like there was, there was no kind of inching his way into it. He went full fledged into this failure. Um, And it's, I mean, it's intriguing, if nothing less. It is. And it says so much about the industry because he had kind of he had, he'd spent the 90s just kind of complaining that he had gotten all these bad contracts. So by the time he takes this big, weird step, the industry is almost like looking for a reason to bring him down. Mm. And so there's this Shakespearean aspect of it, too, where he has just 
he has alienated so many people that when he tries to do this weird project, they are just looking for, they're just, they're out for blood. And I, I, you know, there's just so much to the story. I, I actually, last summer I got COVID and in this kind of weird COVID brain, I wrote about 15,000 words in a biography of Chris Gaines as though he were real. And that's the best time I've had writing. It was a party every time I sat down to my computer. So I'm really glad that I get to continue it with this, with uh, an ad, you know, 20 more thousand words. So, Well, I'm excited to read it. So uh, listeners, you want to be looking out sometime in late 2024, or early 2025, uh, be looking out for the 33 and a third volume on Chris Gaines, written by Stephen Deucer. Well, Stephen, let's jump in and talk about truly one of the great voices of the 60s and 70s and even into his gospel work in the 80s and 90s. For you, what got you into Al Green? What was your your first exposure to Al Green and, and what has he meant to you over the years? You know, I think uh, for a lot of people my age, of a certain age, I'm going to leave it at that, um, my first exposure to him was the duet he did with Annie Lennox uh, called Put a Little Love in Your Heart for Scrooged. Um, you know, that was the first time I saw him and heard him. I think I knew the name just because I, you know, lived so close to Memphis. And I think that that was a name that got um, talked about a lot. And so, you know, when I did get to Memphis for college, I went through a period where I was trying to really study up on the music that the city had produced because I, I fell in love with that town almost immediately. And I fell in love with its musical history. And so I read a lot about Elvis, of course, but I also got into, into stacks and, you know, in a lot of my research, Al Green was a name that came up, but you know, it, it was a, it was a little bit later before I really got into him. Um, and I remember buying greatest hits on CD, um, and being a little bit, I won't say disappointed, but I, 
I think I expected more somebody like Otis Redding, who's uh, a very emphatic demonstrator. He's a, he's a shouter a little bit, you know, and, you know, Sam and Dave and that, that, that 60 stack sound where it's very kind of urgent and a little raw and, and uh, very much about the performance and being in that moment and speaking to a lot of people in the way that good soul music does. And Al Green was totally not like that. It was a totally different kind of soul and a kind of totally different kind of vocal. And it took me a bit to kind of like adapt to that, to that style. Um, and then found that I really loved it and, you know, found that I really loved his band. And I, I think, um, you know, the high rhythm section and, and, and the stuff that was going on at Royal was, I mean, that's, that's phenomenal stuff. And it, it is very much like stacks and that it is, it's really remarkable, but it's not really ostentatious. It's just really solid beats. It's really great grooves. It's these arrangements where everything feels like it's everything's in its place and everything's right where it's supposed to be, including Al Green and his voice. Um, and I love, you know, Ann Peoples and, and, and uh, Syl Johnson and some of the other people that the high rhythm section worked with, but Al Green, he was like the best, he was, he was the best vocalist that they ever got just cause he was, he was treating his voice like an instrument. And so when you hear those squeals and those falsettos, I mean, it's just, Oh, it takes my breath away. And so, you know, it, it, he's somebody that I've, I've followed and loved, um, have had the chance to interview a few times and he's always entertaining. I haven't, I don't know, for some reason I have never really been, uh, tempted to really dive deep into his gospel stuff though. Like, uh, you know, when he leaves the sort of secular pop realm and gets into gospel for some reason though, it's just, I think that's probably a cutoff point for a lot of people. And it, it yeah. kind of, it's for me, but maybe one day I'll wake up and they'll be like exactly what I want to hear and explore. But for now it's that, that 70 stuff. And then his, his, his records, um, in the two thousands are really good too. So, um, it's kind of a, a nice bridge, I guess. And, yeah. And, and I, I will tell you as, as someone who, um, spent a lot of time growing up with the gospel music of Al Green, his soul, his, his R and B stuff is just so much better there his the uniqueness of his voice and I, and I love how you mentioned kind of how that that high soul in, in in this way that this band in particular in the arrangements whether it's um oh uh, Chalmers or um James Mitchell the 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 string arrangements and the way in which his voice works so well with all those strings there's there's a there's a unique polish to his soul and R&B stuff that as strange as it is, just isn't there on his gospel music. Yeah. You'd almost think that gospel music, especially some of the gospel music that comes out of the, the sixties, you know, has so much power to it. And it's almost like gospel that is devoid of any of um, the historic, like Southern black church experience 
and so it, it sounds too polished. It sounds too radio friendly. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm with you. I think that gospel period becomes where a lot of people step away from Al Green's career. But for me, that was my first exposure to Al Green was, was growing up in a household where um, his gospel records uh, oh, wow. were often on. Micaiah, what about you? I don't know. I, it's a, he's just one of those giant artists, you know, cause my, you know, my, my parents are much older. Um, if, even for like, like my dad was born in 1949. Okay. So he was very uh, much into older music and I was always listening to older music in the house. Like I was living that the big chill experience in the nineties as a little kid. So a lot of Motown, but also some Al Green because at some point, Al Green had a house in Florida and needed a deck built. I think it was like on the water. And my dad worked uh, in construction. And I guess I think my dad worked on that project at Al Green's house, but didn't oh. know who he was. And then after that, he had to go out and get the Al Green CD. So that was my dad somehow late exposure to Al Green. But that was a CD that, you know, I would have heard that's just stuff that like, I just kind of heard just kind of in the background for a long time. And I guess my Scrooge equivalent would probably be Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Uh, with the let's stay together needle drop and that soundtrack. When you meet Marcellus Wallace, I, I reckon that would probably be where like as a teenager, I was just like, Oh, this is like familiar. And I kind of know what this is. And then, you, and then I was, that's where it kind of like really, uh, you know, really kind of took off. It's like, oh, I need to, I need to pull on that thread some more. The the greatest hits compilation like wasn't enough. You know, so you, when you listen to like, there's a, I mean, a good run. His high records run from like '69 to '77. Most of what's in there is like a really great like, it's 12 albums altogether. But like that like 10 album run is just like really really great. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, you know, and I've been doing that this week and ready for that, revisiting like all of the high records years. Uh, but yeah, I think one thing I want to note, um, is that some string arrangements were mentioned. And I think that's an important note because when we were talking about Otis Redding and the difference between them is that, you know, when we were defining Otis and like Memphis soul, you know, it was you know, heavy on the horn section and the, the sweet soul of like the drifters and like the Motown acts, they focus more on string arrangements and Al Green has, you know, with Willie Mitchell has figured out how to do both. Um, but he's very reserved on the strings, but that that's what brings in a sweetness that like Otis doesn't necessarily have. Otis can be sweet, but not in the same way that Al Green is. So there's something about the high records you know, sound that is different than stacks and still different than, than Motown that just like creates this like real sweet spot in the seventies where there's like that void, like there's no more Otis Redding. And if you're not into like the kind of machismo soul that Isaac Hayes is now getting into, right. There's, there's like kind of this old, this like alternative. And so I think that's kind of what made him more interesting to me over the years. Yeah. And the string sections, I mean, and especially mentioning Isaac Hayes, where he's doing these heavily orchestrated 
like epic songs, like a 12 minute version of walk on by with these incredible strings. And I love them. And then you have Philly soul, which is very opulent ornate string sections. And then you have Al Green, which is like, I, I kind of forget that there are strings on here because they're just yeah. so well incorporated and they're so restrained. I, like you said, I think that's a really good point. talk about that i mean let, let's let's explore a little bit what is the legacy is is we've kind of already been alluding to and and where al green fits in the pantheon of great soul and r&b singers what is the legacy of al green and what what is it we've kind of been talking about it but let's be specific what is it that makes al green what sets him apart from you know, Bill Withers and, um, you know, and, and Sam Cook and, you know, so many of the other, uh, soul and R and B singers and artists of this period of time, both before and after. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we've already brought up like Otis Redding and, you know, this kind of shouter soul shouter kind of, uh, delivery which i mean i love and i love isaac hayes who which is a a you know a, a very different delivery as well and very um um influential at the time and aretha franklin and mm. and then you've got al green who is totally different and 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 i think at the time i i noticed a lot of people seem to kind of call him smooth soul as though that was I don't know. That feels very superficial because I, I smooth is maybe not necessarily the word I would use to describe it. Although it is smoother than what came before, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there is um, like Micaiah said just a minute ago, there's this like almost rejection of this kind of machismo, uh, this, this kind of macho soul and rock uh that was really kind of popular at the time. And, and, and especially with like, um, like singer songwriter fear, which sort of was disguised as sensitive, but I think kind of brought through some of those macho ideas. Um, 
And here you have somebody kind of rejecting all of that. I mean, what I love about I'm still in love with you is the joy and the gratitude. I mean, every song is about gratitude and and just the joy of intimacy and not even sexual intimacy, although that's part of it. There's this larger kind of intimacy that he is he's singing about. And it's not even that he's and he's singing about it, but he's singing from within that intimate moment. And so he's bringing you into that. And I think of a lot of soul music um, as being very public uh, because it is gospel and gospel is from the church and there's, there's always a congregation. I, I think with, with Al Green, it's taking away all that. And it's just speaking to like just two people. Mm-hmm. It's whittling all of that down. And I think that is a very, po- I mean, when you look, listen to that and you listen to, you know, these, very restrained musicians and you listen to this very kind of liquid arrangement where everything is flowing together. Um, that to me is very powerful and very immersive and very inviting. And, and, uh, you know, to, I think that's, that's for me, at least from this period, what, what really sets him apart is that intimacy. Mikai, what do you think? What, what is it that sets Al Green apart? I think there are a number of things, and I think it takes him a while to figure out what that is, too, because when you listen to the early records, there is this kind of Memphis thing, kind of like, okay, um, he'll be like the high records equivalent of Otis, maybe? No. Um, and Or he tries some James Brown kind of things, like on the first uh, high records album, um, and you know, trying to the, you know, doing the shouts and the, you know, kind of minimal lyrics and just kind of refrains. But I I think he knew he's not the showman that Otis is and certainly not that James Brown is. Yeah. And so I think, um, and even with um, Al Green gets next to you, the 71 record, that's much more a funk album. Uh, that there, there's a lot of like hard funk, like Southern funk. It sounds like the meters could be his backing band on, on that album. Um, so it's it, in 1972, the album we're talking about today, one of them um, and let's stay together, both come out in 72. And I think that's where he arrives kind of fully formed um, is when that's when he kind of gets the Al green sound uh, coming together. And what I think that is, is really something that relies on the studio instead of like the live presentations. And so, you know, he's not doing the, the Motown model of like the 45s. We live and die by the 45s and he's not doing the James Brown. Like we're going to go on the Chitlin circuit and same with Otis, you know, live and die on the, you know, the live shows and the Chitlin circus. And of course the, the records have to sell too. But I think of Al Green as being a very uh, important LP artist. So with Let's Stay Together and Still in Love with You and Call Me and uh, Explores Your Mind, like these are these are important LPs, you know, and they're they're tight, you know, eight tracks, nine tracks, ten tracks, really tight albums that feel very intentional and some songs can sound very similar, um, but sometimes they're, they're like, you know, sometimes you feel like they're like, okay, but there's going to be like one track for us where they really let the band groove. Like each album kind of has that where they can like kind of test the limits. And then like what they play with there 
might be like where the next album's going to go after they've like discovered what they can do. So there's, there's a, a playfulness there, like with the band. And um, I mean, this rhythm section, we'll just say this now. Uh, he has two drummers who work for him, a percussionist, Howard Grimes and Al Jackson. Uh, and then Leroy Hodges on bass, Charles Hodges on organ and piano, and Tenny Hodges on guitar. So that's his rhythm section, and that's a winning rhythm section. Um, and I think that's what sets him apart. Because when he loses those guys, there's nothing to set him apart. So I think he relies very heavily on this band, mm-hmm. and they don't play like Booker T and the MGs at all. Um, the, the organ does not sound like Booker T at all. And I think there's there's a lot of heavy drones, and it, it warbles, and it's kind of funky. There's a little funkiness, but it's not funk. Um, and I think, but so there's something really great about that. And like I was saying about the horns are there and that's very Memphis and the, the restraint, you know, knowing when to have the, the strings there, I think it's very important to not, you know, make it sound like Smokey Robinson because he doesn't want to be Smokey Robinson. And I don't think he could be Smokey Robinson, even though he has a version of a my girl, like everybody else. But I, I think that, uh, he's just, Within the Southern Soul, the inclusion of strings, um, the rhythm section that is not Booker T and the MGs, or like any other like uh, like Muscle Shoals house band who's recording for everybody. He kind of has this team that's really, I think High Records is just all in on Al Green. Like he's the one who's bringing in the money. So I feel like it's all hands on deck to like support these records, and that comes through. Yeah, total record run especially yeah 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 and i i think that there is that kind of polish the the kind of bringing the best people to the table on all of these albums i I think i think you really hear that and i love is i love as well that you mentioned in his especially early on um on uh green is blues um i love the song get back baby but that is definitely the song where it's him trying to do james brown and it 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 doesn't fit it's it's a great song but it it doesn't fit him in in this persona and so it is interesting that it whether it's al green or whether it's high records figuring out this formula and kind of where to land and i i think really it's by the time they get to let's stay together that the the record label that al green that um, Mitchell Chalmers, they, they've figured out this kind of magic and that run, especially that let's stay together. I'm still in love with you. Call me run. I mean, I, essentially for those three albums to all come out over the course of not even 12 months, it is, is tremendous to me from basically early 1972 to early 1973. <laughs>
Micaiah, let me ask you to start. Why did you choose I'm Still in Love with You? And then, Stephen, I'd love to get your thoughts about kind of what what a good argument for I'm Still in Love with You as a representation of Al Green. What 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 makes that a great representation of Al Green and, and makes it maybe the case to be on our list? Yeah, I mean, so the reason I chose it is uh... – not for any like really smart reason uh, is that it's my my favorite Al Green album. Um, Call Me is a very close second, but I would say that this this is my favorite one. But I think it's the best one too. Um, when you really break down kind of all the elements, um, it's right in the middle of that kind of that really great three album run that you mentioned that happens in a short span of time. Uh, if you, you know, somebody could say this is the 70s soul equivalent equivalent of Dylan's bring it all back home, highway 61 revisited blonde on blonde this in that analogy would be his highway 61 revisited. And who's going to say that's not one of the great albums. So uh, an, an imperfect comparison, but uh, a good perspective potentially. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, kind of the height of his powers, uh, even though it's still kind of early, so there's a lot more experimentation to go on. I don't want to make this sound like he doesn't do good stuff after because it's so early. But, I mean, the opening track, the title track, I'm Still in Love With You, is as iconic a song as Let's Stay Together. It's just, it's not the one that gets on every film soundtrack, like, from Pulp Fiction to How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days or whatever, you know, like it just, that song just ends up everywhere. Um, but then you get the second song, like I'm Glad You're Mine, which is what I've kind of been talking about uh, this whole time. It's just like, there, there are great horns there. There's a great rhythm section groove and the strings are odd. Like, cause the strings don't swell. They kind of go like the, and you could put you could lift those strings and put them like in a Radiohead song, or in like a like Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which is essentially the same thing now, because it's just like a yeah, which is not soul music, you know, like that's not like a beautiful sound. So it's like, how do you make the violins work with the blues? Really, you know, it's just like which you know, it's like the you know like bending those notes but like on a violin it's you know like it's just a very peculiar kind of thing to do with a, like this with a with a soul song and it sounds awesome and i don't know how many other people were doing that so there's the restraint and like where where to put strings and how to use them effectively is is on that song uh which is really really great and then you get kind of right right back into the al green thing with love and happiness which is um like i said before as iconic a song as let's stay together it's just not on like you know all of the soundtracks of all of the the, you know but i mean if you've been to a wedding in the south like you've probably heard this song at a wedding mixing there with let's stay together and everything else i mean love and happiness is 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 great and uh it starts different on the lp than it does on the streaming versions there's Mm -hmm. kind of like a he's just kind of like riffing in the beginning with his voice. And then there's like a strumming on the guitar and then it claps in and then it kicks off. So there's like a real great feeling of being in the room when you have that LP on. That's really great. Um, what a wonderful thing love is, which is where you really get the beautiful string sound. Um, 
the, but they also sound awesome. And I, I'm pretty sure that's uh, one that's been sampled. I mean, all these songs, I mean, hip hop, 90s and 2000s hip hop, mined this album for samples. It happened for decades. I mean, any one of these songs, except for probably the Roy Orbison, have been used for samples for, for decades now. Um, Simply Beautiful, I don't want to take up, I don't want to say everything about every song, but Simply Beautiful is um, a subtle masterpiece. Um, really kind of daring kind of mix. If you made it now, it would not be mixed this way. Um, but to like really put the rhythm section that low in the mix has like a really strange effect. Um, but it's like a real masterclass in mixing and producing and in choosing at what moments you want these things to really rise up. It's, it's, it's a very interesting song. It's, 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 it's really fascinating. Uh, the mix of that song to me. Um, the Roy Orbison cover, perhaps the weakest song on the album, but classic song. I mean, who's you're not going to be upset hearing Pretty Woman? It's it's great. Um, uh, for the good times, now you might expect a Roy Orbison cover. I don't know that you expect a Chris Christopherson cover, and I don't. You probably don't expect it to be this good. Um, I think it's a a, a highlight of that side of the record. I think it's incredible. Um, it's, it's a little bit more conventional soul sound maybe, but it's a, what he's doing with his voice is what makes it, you know, so great. And what makes him not just, I mean, I mean, we haven't mentioned this also, but what's uh, pretty much all original songs. I mean, the songwriter that Al Green is at this point in his career I mean, really exceptional, the number of hits he's turning out, you know, so, and so for the good times, it's just another great reminder of what a great interpreter of songs that he also is. Uh, So that's a a great moment. Uh, Look what you've done for me. Another just like enormous classic song, you know, that uh, I'm not going to say that's as popular as those say together, but it's not the one that gets played all the time, but it could be. Um, and then, uh, you know, one of these good old days, a, a fine ending. Uh, I think the ending of Call Me is probably the best ending track he has in his whole career. So I'll give that album that, which is every time I, when Call Me ends, I'm like, maybe that's the best album because that closing track is just so good. Um, so not, not, not an exceptional closing track, but a fine song on a, a great album that I think is the best Al Green album. I may have spoke too much. Um, and believe it or not, that was me trying to be restrained. Love and happiness. Yeah. Something that can make you do wrong, make you do right. Yeah. Love. Morning, yeah. talking about a 
talk too much about al green i you know i think he's one of those guys you can we could have an all-day conversation and just scratch the surface so i and 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 there's so much i agreed with in that uh you know that like for uh oh pretty woman being the weakest track but i think about like the sort of the cat call quality of the original and he's literally growling at the Roy Orbison is literally growling at this woman. And it's, I don't know, it's to, to hear him do it and kind of take some of that aggression out of it where it's more of a plea. It's more of a, I don't know. It, it's um, more of an appreciation. It's, it's more of a private thing rather than a, a, like a, like a wolf whistle or something like that. It's, I, I love that. And I loved um, uh, for the good times. Um, and that that cover and it fits so well thematically um but i was thinking about um what you were saying about i'm i'm glad you're mine and uh the organ part there's that little stair step organ part that comes in and that is like that just takes my breath away every time i hear it it's one of my favorite things because it's such a unusual sound to hear something that's that I keep coming back to liquid, but it feels like a liquid. It sounds like a liquid part to that. And and I think that just shows like this is a band record and this is a record that's about highlighting the singer, but the singer as he is part of this band. And it's produced in a way that you feel like this band is in a room and you can you you can almost just listening to the album, get the dimensions of this room. Um, and and that kind of reinforces that intimacy I was talking about earlier. So yeah, and and then all of that, all these songs about just celebration and joy, and that having that as the theme. I mean, even the title track, "I'm Still in Love with You," is not about. It's not a breakup song. It's not mourning something that's lost. It's sort of more. It's it's celebrating something that's thrived and survived. And and uh, you know that's I I just think to to have. To be able to sustain that feeling across these songs and these two sides is, I don't know, it just, it, it it's, it's a really remarkable feat. And, and I agree that I think there's not a whole lot of daylight between this one and Call Me. Call Me would be my second pick. And it's another one I'm, I, I feel like I'm ping-ponging back between a lot of points that you were making, but uh, it's another one that's got a country cover. It's got uh, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, which is such a signature song, and to hear him completely reinvent it. Um, I remember reading, I think it's in a biography by Jimmy McDonough, where he he was hanging out a lot with Hank Williams' widow at the time. And he was, they were hanging out and partying in Nashville a lot uh, during this, 
this era. And so it's really interesting to see, like, I mean, obviously I think that's that uh, I'm so lonesome. I could cry cover comes out of that friendship, but I also wondered if she sort of turned him on to Chris Christopherson and then there's Willie Nelson cover. Um, I would love to see him do a country covers record or sort of a country soul record or something like that. I mean, cause he's, he's, um, he's pretty much halfway there with these two albums by themselves. So, and also you can kind of, I, I feel like I'm rambling here and talking uh, a lot, but those, he feels more at home in those covers than he does when he's seeing the Beatles or something like that. Like he, he feels like there's a little bit more for him to hang on to that sentiment is maybe a little bit more um, rich for him. And so I prefer this to those country covers to even the Roy Orbison and especially the Beatles, I don't think is very successful. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you and I'm still in love with you. If you're arguing for what is Al Green's best studio album, um, I, I think it, I think it's "I'm Still in Love with You." Um, again, it'd be between "I'm Still in Love with You" and "Call Me," um, but I, but I think this is the the choice. If if what you're saying is it needs to be a studio album, yeah. Um, but this might be a good time to mention for me. I, I think <laughs> the best pick for Al Green is get as many of the great Al Green songs as you can onto one record. And I love this 19 April, 1975 release of Al Green's greatest hits. And again, what you end up happening, you're at this strange place in his career where Al Green gets next to you, had a big hit. Let's stay together. Had a big hit. I'm still in love with you. It had multiple hits. Call me had hits and then living for you undersells. Al Green explores your mind is is really a commercial flop, and suddenly High Records is is looking at their kind of singular artist and going, uh oh, the 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 album sales are dropping. We are not making the money that we should be making on this artist. So he had this really great period. Let's let's package as many of those songs as we can onto one LP, and we'll release it as the greatest hits. And I think that for as many people who owned Al Green albums, especially albums of that kind of really strong three album run, it, at least in terms of its sales in the seventies, more people owned 
that 75 Al Green's greatest hits. And, and so if you think about what is the iconic Al Green album, even though it seems kind of cheating to say, oh, well, it's got to be this greatest hits album, that greatest hits album for a lot of folks was the thing in the 70s that they had, you know, the, the average, the average um, music consumer in the United States, Al Green's greatest hits, that 75 release um, was what, m- what more people had than any singular Al Green album. And really for, for 10 tracks together on, on the original LP, uh, a, a great selection of music. I mean, you get his, his strongest single from Al Green gets next to you, tired of being alone, starts it off. You have the, the title track from call me. I'm still in love with you. Uh, here I am from call me, which is another great song. Now in the original 1975 greatest hits, his cover of the Bee Gees song, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, is ultimately what was what was on the record. But of course, the Gibb brothers would not allow the licensing for for the every reissue that has come out since. Mm-hmm. So I think rightfully so, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart from Let's Stay Together has been replaced by Love and Happiness from I'm Still in Love with You on subsequent releases of the LP. So my LP version of this album doesn't have How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. It has love and happiness. And then you get Let's Stay Together. I can't get next to you. You ought to be with me. Look what you've done for me. Let's get married, which is the only, you know, essentially they slide in the only single that charted from Living For You. Uh, Let's get married. And you have a pretty great 10 album picture of what I think is the strongest era of Al Green's career. And so, yes, it's a greatest hits. And, you know, it's hard when we think about what are great albums to include greatest hits in these lists. But, but I think because it was a greatest hits that came out mid career, it was, you know, of the seventies, it was his highest selling album of the seventies. So it's for the people who were around when Al Green was at the height of his powers, this is the record that most people had. I think that if you're ever going to pick a greatest hits, this is this is the one to pick. And so that's my argument for this 1975 greatest hits collection. But Stephen, <laughs> think about this album. Well, I mean, um, this was my first Al Green album, the the, the reissue, mm-hmm. not the original. So I had the CD, and. I don't know. I don't want to be, I I don't even feel like I am one of those people who just dismisses a greatest hits out of hand because there is an art to making a greatest hits, a good greatest hits. It's got to tell a story and it's got to have a thesis. And I think this one tells a really remarkable story, especially the 75 version. Um, Especially that second side where you've got the let's stay together. Can't get next to you. You ought to be with me look what you've done for me and let's get married, which that is a, is a story of um, loneliness and yearning and reconciliation and gratitude and commitment. It's all right there. That is like an incredible five song set. And, you know, the thesis of this album is that, that, you know, here's an artist who's telling this story and here's an artist who is writing the story. And here's even an artist with the 75 who is able to interpret 
popular songs in a new way. I think that's why when they replace it with love and happiness, which I love, it loses a little something because you don't get that side of Al Green. You don't get that side who is an interpreter. Interesting. Um, so, you know, this, this is an artful greatest hits. It is a greatest hits that's beyond just being a package. And I, w- I would say as far as greatest hits go, this is one of the best and the, the best sequenced, but I would still put it down to I'm still in love with you. Not because it's a studio album, not because I think it shows more sides of him, but because I think it is a band album. Mm-hmm. I think it's an album about him being part of this band and engaging with these other musicians and 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 creating that intimacy that to me is one of the hallmarks of, of this album and this period. Whereas I think Greatest Hits is a singer's album. Micaiah, I mean, cat's out of the bag. Stephen is 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 all in on I'm still in love with you. So knowing already that your your recommendation, your nomination is going to win, what do you love about Al Green's greatest hits? Well, greatest hits, I mean, for me, it's a I would do a couple swaps. Uh, I mean, knowing what we know now, it seems like Take Me to the River should be on there. But that was a bigger hit for Talking Heads than it was Al Green. Uh, so, I mean, I guess it makes sense that's not on there. But um, there are just a couple of omissions that I think are, are you know, yeah, but, but, but Stephen kind of won me over, though. And he's like, no, this is actually, a, a, it makes it, it has a, kind of a narrative function and a thesis that actually holds this all together. And I was like, okay, Take Me to the River actually would be the, the odd man out and actually be kind of jarring, I guess, if you, if you were to do that. So you kind of won me over there, but I mean, Grace, it's, it is, uh, it's 10 
10 perfect songs. I mean, like, what are you going to, how, how are you going to knock 10 perfect songs? Um, and, and a great album cover. I'm glad that the cover got brought up because it's interesting because Let's Stay Together has him with the jacket up against the wall and his fro is a little bit bigger. And then the immediate follow-up is him with the jewelry, the white suit, the white room. And it just looks so debonair and so cool. And then, um, and then the living for you is like the drawing. If anything killed living for you, it's probably the cover because it's bad. <laughs> um, and it explores your mind is just like close up of the face, green background, Al Green. Okay, we get it. Um, and then the the greatest hits with him shirtless. You know, the thing the thing about the shirtless image, I, I wonder. If that was his idea, I wonder if that's them trying to be like, hey, man, Isaac Hayes is moving records. We got to move records. Isaac Hayes is out there shirtless, looking sexy. We got to get you looking sexy. I, I, I wonder, you know, how that image can be the cover. That being said, it's a great it's a great image. It's a great cover. He looks awesome on it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's uh, – I mean, for me – uh, it's, I mean, they're probably in the LP era, two of the greatest like compilation records that I can think of from that era. Um, number one is probably Al Green, Al Green's greatest hits. And then two might be like the changes one Bowie compilation, which is also very good and a very tight, like 10 tracks also. But, you know, I, I miss the era of, of greatest hits. They don't get made anymore, which is uh, kind of a bummer. Um, well, now they now it's almost like they're unwilling to make one until they're like sure an artist is done. And so they, 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 they almost try to cover too much. And so I like the idea of in that they had in the seventies of like, all right, we're going to do a greatest hits of like this short period of time that's mm-hmm. just passed. Like the artist, this artist isn't done, but Hey, you know what they had, they had a really great run here. And so let's put those, those hits all together. I, I, I'm with you. I missed that season. Well, I feel like you'd probably a studio studio, uh, whatever. They'd probably lose more money making a great, it's just like, all right, well, we got to get the artwork and we got to get this all together and we got to make these many units. We have to get it on CD and we have to get the LPs. Right, and we got to get that all together, and we have to package it, and we have to get it out there. Well, who's going to buy it if you can all stream? If you can make that playlist yourself, who's going to buy that greatest hits comp? Maybe the White Stripes compilation did well. I didn't check the numbers on that, um, which was kind of interesting when they decided to do that to do like a greatest hits compilation. Which I'm glad that they did, so I think it's awesome. But I think I think labels have more to lose now by putting out a greatest hits comp. Now the new thing is to do the big box set, yeah. Um, which we love the box sets also. Yeah. yeah, like here's here's nine here's nine LPs worth of outtakes from that from the record you already own, and put it together and sell it to you for three hundred dollars. Give me eleven LPs on the making of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I cannot pre-order it fast enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh I I spent a lot of money on the uh, the T Rex nineteen seventy two box set. Uh, import that uh you know that was rent for the month or something it was <laughs> but uh it was worth it it was just like six six lps of just you know my favorite era of one of my favorite bands so mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I love that. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for that. And yeah, like you said, 11 LPs of Wilco, sign me up. I'm there, you know. It sounds like we're all kind of on board that, okay, the the best Al Green album is I'm Still in Love With You, but Call Me is close. And so if it's not going to be this greatest hits album, if it is I'm Still in Love With You, let's talk for just a minute since this is the only, the only episode we're going to do on Al Green as the nature of our podcast. Let's talk for just a minute about how good Call Me is as a record. I mean, with the greatest hits album, the original 75 it has more singles from Call Me than any other uh, Green album. Yeah. So there's that. Um, plus, it has the two country covers that we've already talked about that are exceptional. Yeah. Um, the second track on Call Me. Uh, have you been making out okay? Yes. That is an exceptional song. That yeah. is, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I guess he does that. He makes his track too, just like this, like a, it's the I'm glad you're mine of Call Me. Mm-hmm. Um, just an incredible, incredible song. And like I said earlier, his best closing track, which is a precursor to his his gospel years that are going to come in a, in a few years. So it, it's kind of, is the interpreter of songs, it's the country influence, it has the gospel, and it has the straightforward Al Green you know, style soul music. So you could very easily say how and why that would be the quintessential you know, one, maybe if it had a better album cover, because again, it's not a great album cover. I like the back cover better than. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's where it gets, you know, that, that kind of like kick dance thing he's doing on the back cover. That should be the front. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I, I will tell you, this is, and I think it's easy to blame 1980s era production and it's easy to blame not only 1980s era production, but also, how and again i say this as someone who who was raised on christian music the the production the the production of of christian music in the 80s and 90s was all centered in nashville and it was all of the nashville ethos and none of the memphis ethos and you hear that 
in every one of these songs. And so for me, Jesus is waiting this incredibly powerful close to call me. If you hear that, you can't wait for Al Green to do full gospel records. And then nothing in his entire gospel catalog lives up to the promise of Jesus is waiting. And, and again, I don't know if, if that's a production thing. I don't know if that's a songwriting thing. I don't know if it's just what he was going through personally in his life, but that, that run of eighties and nineties gospel albums for, for as gifted a songwriter as he is and for as a really incredible performer as he is, those gospel albums should have been so much better and they're just bad. Yeah. I mean, and it's whittling down. I mean, like he's, he's got this sort of thematic or emotional palette that he's using on these albums that encompasses sex and romance and yearning and marriage and commitment and faith. And then you kind of take all of that away except faith and you don't have as much to sing about. You don't have as much to work with there. And I think maybe, maybe that's why in the back of my brain, that's why I've never been interested in his gospel stuff because it's like, it's, it's just not going to be as rich. It just can't be because that was part of what he was doing before he went full gospel and it was one part. And so now to blow that up into the whole thing is, is limiting. Um, I will say we haven't talked about here. I am come and take me, which is one of my favorite songs of his. I think that is one of those that in any other like in any other career, th- that would that could have been the signature song from somebody. And this it's just like a second tier song from him. You know, it's uh, I love that. That's on Call Me, right? Tell me that's on yeah. Call Me. Okay. It's, a, it's the side B opener of Call Me. It, and, and not only is it a great song, but like, again, like I, I love listening to Al Green Records on LP rather than streaming because I love, you know, kind of the point you're making almost with the greatest hits idea that like, his his best albums are sequenced in a way that they have these really beautiful narratives across the two sides. And so I love that, you know, especially on Call Me, I, I love this kind of picture you get of this kind of short four song narrative on the B side that starts with here I am, come and take me and concludes with Jesus is waiting. Yeah. Um, the, 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 I mean, the longing the longing that's built in to the entirety of the B side of call me is, is just so good. I mean, here I am, come and take me funny how time slips away. This beautiful, this beautiful rendition of this country song. You ought to be with me and Jesus is waiting. Like it's, it's someone who's longing for every type of intimacy, whether that's relationally, whether that's a woman, whether that's God. I mean, it's, it's, there's so much built in to, um, to that narrative on the B side of call me that I love. Yeah. I feel like that's a, that's a whole album about connection and making these connections. I mean, even just like call me, like connect with me. Um, you know, that's, I love that the way that he, you know, maybe even subconsciously takes that theme and just kind of teases it out, not only in how, what he writes, but in how he sings. It's, you know, that's what makes Jesus is Waiting such a great uh, closer is because it's like, it feels like the natural culmination. Yeah. 
in a different world where that's a double LP, then it's the best double LP of all time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that, in that other universe. Cause they are kind of like a flip side to each other. Like they're, you know, this one is like the love you have. And this one is like the love that you're missing, that you're, that that you're yearning for, that you're trying to, to make that connection. And so it's, it's almost like love gained and love lost. I mean, just so you know, and also you have like kind of the all white cover versus like the very dark cover of call me. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of a, a night and day kind of thing in two sides of the same coin. I mean, they, they, it's so hard to, to separate the two. Stephen, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Of course, you've been on the podcast before, and so you know that we like to end every conversation with every guest uh, by asking for a top five. And so um, the top five can be entirely up to you, a best, a favorite, um, you know, your your favorite soul albums, a favorite you're listening to this, you know, right now. Uh, you pick the top five and you give them to us. So I kind of hinted at this when we were talking about Garth Brooks, who's been on my mind and the whole notion of bad music, I'm a huge fan of bad movies and especially love when they overlap. My, one of my favorite album uh, movies of all time is the apple, which is if you haven't seen it, it's a musical that was made in 1980 set in 1994. And it's all about the future. It's all filmed in a German airport it's glorious in its wrongness. I love, um, but thinking about bad music and how you enjoy it. And can you enjoy it in the same way that you enjoy bad movies, which is not quite ironically where you kind of meet them on their own terms and you find something good. So I, instead of bad, I'm going to just say, these are the top five disreputable albums in my collection that I've been listening to lately disreputable i love this yeah so i've got them written down just because i'm going to forget so number five is z music for sensuous lovers and z was the 
pseudonym for Mort Garson, who was an early synthesizer Moog ad adopter and a uh, composer who did Plantasia. That's kind of his famous one. And Sacred Bones Records reissued Plantasia. They reissued the, the album he did as a satanic black mass. He, they, he, they reissued his occult album, all these things, but they did not reissue his songs, uh, music for sensuous lovers, because it is about as erotic as a stubbed toe. It's Moog music. It's early synth compositions, but he's sampled all of this kind of like moaning and erotic uh, pillow talk. And except he's distorted it in a way that's kind of strange and weird. So it's not good, but it is a really fascinating artifact from this composer. Four is Boney M Night Flight to Venus, which is a it's a German disco group put together by the same guy who put together Millie Vanilli. And they had a big hit with Rasputin uh, in the late 70s. It was a big hit over in England and bless England's heart. It was like a number one hit over there. It was huge. They didn't make quite as big a splash here, but the Rasputin is like uh one of the lyrics is there was a cat that was re really was gone. And I just, I love that for this historical disco song, but there's also this incredible uh, cover of Neil Young's heart of gold, which ends the album. And it's this like glitter and disco balls and it's beautiful. And it's like, not even like bad, good. It's just good. I, I actually probably enjoy it more than the original. And uh, I, I'm not trying to fight or, troll somebody I'm just like I get a lot of joy out of it so Three is the Chariots of the Gods soundtrack by the Peter Thomas Sound Orchestra, um, which sounds it's 
a it's like a very famous documentary in that it's posits that aliens have been visiting humans throughout our entire existence and they go all over the world looking at all this sort of fake evidence and the peter thomas is adjacent to avant-garde composition and so you can kind of see he's trying to make some of those ideas accessible to a public audience but it ends up sounding sort of like a like like an industrial film soundtrack like a like a safety film soundtrack it's i don't know it's i it hits a sweet spot for me um and then number two is sammy johns his self-titled album which might be his actual only album um he's best known for chevy van which was a hit in the seventies. She made love to me in my Chevy van and that's all right with me. Uh, But he's also got another song on there called early morning love, which is just really stupid, but he's singing like the singer songwriter movement of the seventies really convinced a lot of people that they had something to say, even though they didn't. And this guy was one of them. And he keeps singing about, free love and and sex and getting laid, but it, he, he never sounds like he's made it past second base. Like it is, <laughs> it's, it's just beautiful and, and stupid. Uh, and then number one is Cliff Richards, the soundtrack to his co- film career killing movie, take me high, which my wife and I, uh, we moved to Birmingham about six or seven years ago. We were, she got a fellowship and we, we were going to be in there in Birmingham for seven months. And we thought, well, let's just look and see what movies were filmed there. And none except for take me high. And it was so, it's such a horrible movie that it killed his film career. And the soundtrack is just full of these tortured metaphors, awkward melodies, bad nonsensical rhythms. Like there's one song about him being brokenhearted. He's been dumped. It's like, I used to be a man of color and now on midnight blue. And that is just like, he doesn't understand, like there's no acknowledgement that he understands what's going on or why that's wrong. (laughs) And they were all written by this guy named Tony Cole, who I have, I could have included him. I found two of his records and they're all, his records are bitter about not being as big as the Beatles. Like he's bashing the Beatles on his records as sellouts and saying, I would never do that. And it's just like, like, it's it's just like a it's it's delicious it's 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 a it's a bizarre world to be in so take me high if you want a really really bad album that you will listen to all the way through i can't recommend it highly enough well, i don't think i have the strength for that <laughs> I, I i i will say this in three seasons of doing the podcast Stephen, this is by far the best list anyone has done. <laughs> Top five disreputable albums. Oh man, this this is going to be um, endless joy for Makai and I for years to come. I promise you, going back and forth because we already spend you know days and weeks trying to decide what the best albums are every year. But what a way to celebrate bad music than to do an annual disreputable albums list. Uh, for our listeners, uh, Stephen, how can people stay up to date with you and and, and hear what's going on in your world? Uh, do you have a, a Twitter, Instagram, anything you want to let people know about? Uh, I'm on Instagram at 
Stephen Dusner. I'm not on Twitter anymore. And uh, that has just been a little gift I gave myself. Uh, <laughs> and you can find me at, at stephendusner.com uh, as well. So, uh, Stephen, always good to talk with you. And uh, we will definitely be reaching out to you next season to let you nerd out about all things T-Rex. Yeah, no, I'm going to go put the slider on right now and, and play her guitar and sing along and probably scare my dog. But uh, <laughs> be looking forward to that for a yeah. whole year now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, hey, you have a great night, guys. Thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Y'all take care and uh, we'll talk to you soon. despite the fact that we didn't end up going with greatest hits, all three of us, I think there was, there was zero disagreement on what the best album is. The best studio album by Al Green is I'm still in love with you. I love that there was that much clarity, you know, so that it never between these two, but it muddies the waters when call me gets in there. I feel like, I feel like everyone on a different, if we recorded this podcast tomorrow, I feel like we could all come in and be like, maybe it was call me. Like well, then that's we all agree, that's a close, uh, the, as close a number two is like we were with like OK Computer Kid A, you know. Like I, I feel like it's it's almost that close, if not that close. Yeah. I, so here's the thing that I find really interesting. Let's stay together comes out March of 1972. October of 1972. I'm still in love with you comes out February of 1973 call me comes out incredible if if high records had not been in such a hurry to sell another album you posited this idea in February of 1973 if Al Green had released a double LP that was I'm still in love with you as the first LP and call me as the second LP. And if that was a double album, I I mean, pretty undeniably, I think we're talking about a top 50 album of all time. It would be called the best soul album of all time. Yeah. Like Like if 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 we stop talking about Otis Redding and it would just be, Oh yeah. You know, that perfect Al Green double LP. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But soul's not, it's not a double LP genre. That's not, 
That's not what soul's about. It doesn't, you know, but. And, and I will say, I, I, and this has been, I don't know if this has been your experience this week, but listening to so much Al Green this week, um, I'm not complaining. Do not, do not, listeners, do not hear me complaining about this. But at a certain point with soul music, if you don't take the time to take it all in, you know, a, a side at a time or an LP at a time, if you're just streaming through a soul artist discography, at a certain point, it all just blends together. And so I, I do think that that a double a double LP soul album, I, I, I wonder if the strength of Call Me would wane uh, because it would be the second LP of that double of this imagined double LP that we're talking about. Possible. I mean, sure. But no, I mean, you're right. Like I, I would not recommend to any, anyone listening to go and listen to like the 12 high records albums consecutively. Um, break it up. Cause they're not, they're not meant to be enjoyed that way. Yeah. Especially if you're going at them for like the first time, uh, I would say break them up. Do make make it a two week project. Mm-hmm. And do do one a day and let's do it a couple times each day. You know, uh, because not not that they all sound the same, but they're not supposed to be lived with that way. Yeah, and it's one of the things I've actually really so I've gotten in the habit of doing this when when there's time. Obviously, because of the nature of this podcast, we don't always have the time to. But when there's time even if I'm listening to something streaming rather than listening to it from the actual LP on my, on my turntable, I have gotten to the point where I will basically create two playlists of basically like the side a and side B playlist so that, so that I get that little break Hmm. between a side a and side B, because especially when we're talking about like the LP era, like they were sequenced that way. They were, they were designed for that break. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I, I wonder sometimes if you miss the power of like a side A closer or a side B opener because you listen to them essentially with like two seconds of silence on streaming. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think it's I think it's important to get up, turn it over, dust it off, set the needle back down, go sit down, mm-hmm. get your drink or something. You know, I think that's just you're just you're just. I think it's just more important to to interact with the record than to just like stream it, you yeah. know, like actually act, actively holding the artifact in your hand, cleaning the right. Re- I mean, there's there's something about the the materiality of that that I think is important for listening to music. And also, I mean, I have a few Al Green LPs. Every time I see the original high record stuff, I always snag them if they're in good enough shape because some are pretty worn out. A lot of the ones that I find so. Uh, they're they're very loved because you can tell they've been played quite a bit whenever you find them. So I don't pick up everyone I see because they they're not all in great shape. But it's it's one of my favorite things to do is to find an original Al Green out there and and take it home and and spin it. So so here's the question: Does I'm still in love with you belong on our list? I mean, you know, it's not a question for me. Uh, obviously, I. I believe that it does. I think it's one of the great soul albums of all time. If not the best Southern soul album of all time, 
But I mean, I, but Al Green, that's kind of, I said this in the Otis writing, like Otis and Al Green are like my guys when it mm-hmm. comes to, to soul music. Um, it's harder because like when I think of like someone like Stevie, I'm like, well, Stevie's soul, sure, but he's also funk and he's also this and that. Stevie, like he's just like Prince. They're like, well, what do you what do you begin to to call them? They're kind of genres unto themselves. Mm-hmm. Like Al Green is like one of my guys, like someone who I just like really gravitated toward, and it's because he's an LP artist. It's it's, it's so much easier to like grasp the career of Al Green than it is to like grasp like a Motown act. I know I go to that well a lot, but you know, so I, I love Al Green and, and this record is every time I hear it, I'm, I'm hearing different nuances and the organ, like simply beautiful. The more time I spend with that, the more I, I realize just how subtly like masterful it's put together, you know? So it's, it's, it, you know, for something that is perceived as not being as nuanced as like the progressive soul music, um also coming out at the time i think it's it's very nuanced um and the band is never tighter than uh, on these on these albums and this album in particular is just it's all right there um so for me um i think it's in the top 100 um i'd be fine with call me being there and if it went the other way and it was greatest hits i'd be fine with that too um truth be told but i'm still in love with you I think is as an LP, his, his crowning achievement. Yeah. I, I, and I agree with, I agree with all of that. Listener. What do you think is, is does Al Green deserve a top 100 album on our list? I mean, certainly Rolling Stone disagrees with that. They do now. Yeah. They do now, which is wild. Um, what do you think is and if so, is this the right album? Should it be that Greatest Hits collection from 1975? Should it be Call Me? Um, again, which I think we've all agreed is just as strong as, of an album as I'm Still in Love With You. Let us know what you think. Reach out to us on Twitter at YouForgotOnePod, on Instagram at YouForgotOne. Of course, our website is YouForgotOne.com. And Micaiah, for everyone who's listening on the myriad podcasting platforms that are out there, what should they do? Of course, uh, they should leave a five-star review or even better write a review helps other people find the show and it lets us know what it is that you're digging about, you know, podcast so we can, you know, deliver what you want. Um, and also, you know, if you want uh, new episodes to arrive as soon as they drop, then you should like follow, subscribe, whatever it is your provider tells you to do. Um, yeah. Please, pretty please. I love it. Listener, we have let you listen to a bunch of music today from Al Green. Of course, sons of music from his greatest hits collection and music from I'm Still in Love with You. But we're going to leave you now with maybe his best closing track to any album Call Me's Jesus is Waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. 